Today's scripture reading comes, starts in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away, but Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father rule, he asked, Why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? He asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son, whom he named Gershom, for he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because of the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, 
If I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am the, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. So the title for my message this morning is Self-Sufficient Saviors. Self-Sufficient Saviors. And I want you to go with me to a mountainside. I want you to imagine in your mind's eye you are in a desert wilderness It's a cold, crisp night. You're alongside a rocky terrain on a mountain peak, and you see an old man half-sitting, half-leaning against the side of a rock. He pulls his cloak closer to him as the cool air nips at his skin. He's afraid if he sits down, he may fall asleep, and he doesn't want to stop guarding the sheep that are in his care. And so he grips his staff in both hands, and he sort of leans his weight forward. And as he does, his mind begins to drift. Begins to drift decades and decades in the past. And no longer is he surrounded by a cool night breeze and a rocky mountain terrain and a desert wilderness and sleeping sheep. Now, he's walking through the palatial splendor of Pharaoh's home. He was walking through wealth and riches and luxury. He was a man who had been instructed in all the wisdom of Egypt. He was a man of great power and action when he spoke and when he did things, stuff happened. He was a man of great privilege. He was a man that had great hopes and great dreams. He, He thought about if anybody was set up for success, surely it was me. But at the same time, the the memory sort of causes a tinge of pain and he he squints his face just remembering, yes, but none of that sat well with me. Yes, I I had privilege, I had power, but but none of that really felt all of that comfortable. See, I I was raised in my birth home and I know who I was. I, I know that the Egyptians were oppressing my people. I know that I racially was part of this group that was enslaved. I have no idea why God called me to be raised in Pharaoh's household, but the whole thing just didn't sit well with me. Maybe part of it was because he felt guilty, because his people were enslaved, but, but he sat in a place of comfort and privilege and power. Or maybe he realized, you know what? Even though I am a part of Pharaoh's household, I'm not Egyptian. I'm, I'm part of the Hebrew race, and so I probably get side eyes. Whatever it may be, that sense of uneasiness that he carried, soon turned into this deep-set conviction. You know what? I am not going to identify with the Egyptians, but I'm going to identify with my people. These are my people. I belong to the nation of Israel, not Egypt. And while I don't know why God necessarily called me here, here's what I do know. I can use my privilege, I can use my power, I can use all my education, and I can be the redeemer of Israel. I can save them. I can do something about it. I see my people enslaved. Could it be that God has called me to save them, to rescue them? 
Well, as this man also begins to remember, even as an old man, he, this day was crystal clear in his mind because this was the day that everything changed. He was walking among his people as had become his common practice. He wanted to be a part of them and, and to identify with them. And as he had seen countless times before, an Egyptian slave master beating one of his brothers. Well, in the past, he had let this pass. He sort of just buried his anger inside and let it go, but not this time. This time he was going to do something. This time he was going to take matters into his own hands. And so he looks over here, coast is clear. Looks over here, no Egyptians. And he pounces on this guy and hits him and strikes him down. Did he mean to kill the guy? Who knows? But he did. And in that, he had rescued one of his brothers, set them free from the oppression of this Egyptian. And so with fresh energy and a sense of purpose and initiative, the next day he goes out to his people yet again. But this time, he sees two brothers of his fighting and he goes in and he tries to intervene. He's like, hey, guys, why are you hurting one another? You, you are brothers. You should be supporting one another in this heavy burden. Why are you fighting amongst yourselves? He believed if we were going to be rescued, if we were going to get out of slavery, we need to be unified. We needed to be together. The Egyptians are oppressing us. We can't be fighting amongst ourselves. And he remembers the the pain of the embarrassment as one of his Hebrew brothers looks at him and goes, who do you think you are? Who made you a commander and a judge over us? And then the next words cut even deeper. You're gonna kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Wait, you, you, you don't want my help? You, 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 you didn't want me to save you from the Egyptians? You, you, you don't understand. God, God called me to be your rescuer. God, God put me in this position to, to help you, to save you. I, I, I'm supposed to be your... Wait a minute. E e Egypt knows. It's known that I killed somebody. Pharaoh probably knows. And if Pharaoh catches me, I'm dead. What, wait, is that two Egyptian soldiers coming towards me? They don't look like they want to say hi. I better bolt. And so he runs. He runs. He runs as far away from Egypt as he possibly can. The sound of hooves on the rock sort of startle him and bring him back to the present. And he notices that two of his sheep are drinking at the pool of water that he stopped by for the night to make camp. And then he chuckles to himself. <laughs> Egyptians hate shepherds, despise them, see them as the scum of the earth, if they could only see me now, out in the wilderness tending sheep, a member of Pharaoh's household, now a shepherd. How ironic. How, how unexpected. You, you know, it's true what he said. Who made me commander and ruler over Israel? Behold my greatness. Shepherding sheep in the wilderness on a mountainside. Look at me now. You know, the guy was right. Who, who do I think I am? Why did I ever think that I could be the one to rescue Israel? I am an exiled murderer separated from my people. No way that I could ever be the one God called to rescue his people. And so as he sits there and ponders, and his question begins to move through his mind, who 
do I think I am? He suddenly catches sight of something off to the side. What, is, that, is that a fire? Where did, where did that come from? And so he moves closer to see, wait, wait, is that a bush that is on fire that isn't being consumed? Okay, need to see what this is all about. And so he moves even closer, and as he gets closer, suddenly he hears Moses. Moses, a voice calling from the fire. It's a friendly voice. It's calling him as one would call a friend, Moses, Moses. So naturally, he's going to move closer, but then don't come any closer. In fact, take off your sandals because the place you're standing is holy ground. Now Moses hesitates for a moment and he's startled. Wait, 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 holy ground? Since when? What, what is happening here? And so in his confusion, he sort of hesitates, but then he realizes, I better do what this voice says because when a voice calls to you from a fire that is not consuming a bush, you, you should do what it says. And so he quickly takes off his sandals. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's God who is calling to him from the burning bush. God is the one who is meeting with him. God is in this fire. And so the moment seizes him and he realizes what anybody should do in the presence of God, hits the ground and hides his face. See, he knows no one can look at the holiness of God and live. And so he knows if I want to save my life, we better stop making eye contact. But what does God want with him? Why is God meeting with him in the middle of nowhere on this mountainside while he is tending sheep? What is going on? Well, the answer comes to him. I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their suffering, and I have come down to rescue them from the, people, from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God saw what was happening to his people, and God heard their cry. And God knew, meaning he was intimately familiar with their suffering. He was not at a distance, but he had entered in. And he said, I am going to come down and rescue my people out of Egypt, and I'm going to bring them to a good land. Well, this is the best news in the world for Moses. Hey, this is what he had hoped for decades and decades ago. This is what he himself had tried to initiate himself. This is great news. God has come down personally, no longer behind the scenes, but up close and personal, and he's going to rescue his people. What incredible news. The next part, though, Moses didn't anticipate. God continues, because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. I'm sending you, Moses, because I have heard that my people are crying out and I have seen their oppression. You go, Moses. Go before Pharaoh and I want you to bring my people out. Say what? I mean, what an incredible moment for Moses to hear God telling him, I'm going to rescue my people. How glorious. How monumental. Moses, and you're going to go do it. How overwhelming. <laughs> 
And almost sort of probably as a knee-jerk reaction, I mean, Moses isn't, you know, walking around going, well, of course you would send me, God. This knee-jerk question, who am I that you would send me before Pharaoh? Who am I that I would bring the people of Israel out of Egypt? Great question, Moses. Who are you? Who is this shoeless shepherd bowed before a burning bush? An exiled murderer. A man far removed from his people. A failed savior, rejected by Israel, hunted by Pharaoh. That's who he is. Moses asks a very good question. At this point in the conversation, Moses is not being fearful, he's being honest. He tried this once and he failed. You might as well just draw a big F on his forehead for failure. This is who Moses was. But God answers his question and it actually explodes his question with power and grace. I will certainly be with you and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Moses asks, who am I? God answers, I will be with you. Moses wants to know what in him qualifies him to be the rescuer and leader of Egypt. And God says, it's not what's in you, but who's with you. You Moses was being honest. He, He recognized his inadequacy. He recognized his failure. He recognized he was probably the last person on earth that God should ever call. And he wasn't wrong. But God is redefining the answer to this question. Who are you, Moses? Yes, you are the failed savior of Egypt. You're the one who tried to take matters into his own hands, and Israel rejected you, Pharaoh hunted you, and you became exiled. Now, it didn't all go bad for you. You found a wife. You settled in with a good family. You have a job. Hey, it's not all bad. But when it comes to this, you failed, buddy. You failed. And so the answer to the question of who am I, viewed from the perspective of Moses, is not a great answer. But what God's answer reveals is, The thing that most defines Moses is not his failure. The answer to the question, who are you, is not his failure, not his exile, not the murder, not the rejection, but that God is with him. Who are you, Moses? You're the one who God is with. That is what defines you now, Moses. Still sort of reeling and trying to take it all in, Moses then asks the next most logical question. Well, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? His first question is, who am I? His second question is, who are you? He understood that when he, the failed savior of Israel, went back to Israel 40 years later and told the the elders and the people, of Israel, hey, God has sent me to deliver you, he knew a natural question was going to be, well, what's his name? You claim to speak for God. You said God appeared to you. Well, you tell us his name. Here's proof. You know who he is. What is his name? 
Now, names in, ancient, in ancient, the ancient world were more than just a marker. It's more than just a way to identify who this person is. Names said something essential about who you were. Spoke about your character, your personality, your position and relationship in the world. So Israel, to ask this question, they're wanting to know, who is this God that sent you? What is he like? A complete, norm, completely normal question for Israel to ask. For Moses, the question betrays a little bit more his fear, his doubts. You say you're with me, but, but who are you? What kind of God is going to go with me? Can I trust you? Are you going to follow through? Are you powerful enough to do this very thing? Moses wants to know who God is and if he can trust him. Once again, God's answer explodes Moses' question with power and with grace. And it really cuts to the heart of this entire story. When Moses asks God what his name is, God answers, Ehyeh, Esher, Ehyeh. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Probably not the name Moses was expecting. It's not a name like, you know, Frank or Bill or Abraham or Jacob. It's not even like the name of one of the Egyptian gods, like Set or Ra. God says, I am who I am. He basically gives Moses the Hebrew to be, the verb for to be. He, he, he gives them, he doesn't give him this proper name right away, but he gives them this concept. In, in Hebrew, this word ehyeh or heyah is the imperfect form of to be. And so what, what do you mean by that to be, I am or I will be? Well, the name is pregnant with meaning. More meaning than we can probably comprehend, but, but here's sort of the gist. God's response to Moses is first this, I exist. I am the one who was and is and will be. I am the center of all existence. I am the self-sufficient one. And suddenly, the burning bush makes sense. A, a bush or a fire that doesn't need the bush to, to exist, doesn't need the fuel to exist, but exists of its own power. The image makes absolute sense now. A God who is not dependent on anyone or anything, the truly self-sufficient one, the one who is the cause of everything else that exists. He is the creator. He is the sovereign ruler over all. And so then God takes this concept of I am, and he, and he packages it into a formal name, Yahweh. Yahweh as well, the, the form of Yahweh is a, is a form of the verb to be. And it shows up in our Bibles as the Lord. Anytime you see Lord capitalized, that is Yahweh, the divine covenantal name of God. But, but here, God's answer is not just waxing philosophical and theological. He's not just giving Moses some sort of a crash course in systematic theology one about the nature of God. As much as that is part of this answer, God's answer is so much more. It is so much more hopeful. It has so much, such a message of good news for Israel and for Moses. As God goes on to tell Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, 
the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Yahweh, the Lord, the the one who was and is and will be. He is the God of your ancestors. He is the God of your father and God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is the God who made those promises and now he is the God who is going to keep those promises. Theologian Herman Bovink beautifully unpacks for us the, the, the fullness of what God is telling Moses here by revealing his name. This is what he says. The Lord says that he who now calls Moses and wants to save his people is the same God as he appeared to their fathers. He is who he is, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will be what he was for the patriarchs, what he is now, and will remain. He will be everything to and for his people. It is not a new and strange God who comes to them by Moses, but the God of the fathers, the unchangeable one, the faithful one, the eternally self-consistent one who never leaves or forsakes his people, but always again seeks out and saves his own. He is unchangeable in his grace, in his love, in his assistance, who will be what he is because he is always himself. I am is a way for God to say, I am who I have always been and I am going to be the same for you, Moses, For you, Israel, and who have I been? Who have I always been? A covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. A God who makes promises and keeps promises. So understand this, Moses. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am. I am eternally existent. I am self-sufficient. I am the sovereign creator over all things. I am the reason there is existence. I am all that power, all that glory, and all of that is for you. All of that is going to be given forward to keep the promise I made, to save and to rescue. So we can wax all we want about the nature of God, the philosophical nature of God. He's creator, he's sovereign, he's existence, all of that. But what he is telling Moses in the moment is all of that comes down as a faithful God who rescues his people. Kind of changes the name of Yahweh for us, doesn't it? (laughs) It's not just this, cool name that we sometimes don't know how to pronounce. But it speaks to who God is and who God is for his people. By revealing his name to Moses, he was saying, Moses, I am this powerful God and you can trust me. That's who's with you. That's who's going with you. The sovereign, faithful creator who rescues. You ask me, who am I? That's who I am. You ask who's going with you, that's who's going with you. When Israel asks you who's going to rescue us, you tell them that's who's going to rescue you. Now, commissioned for this monumental task, (laughs) Moses felt his inadequacy, and rightfully so. You and I would have been the same. We'd have melted in the face of that. (laughs) We can barely manage our own schedules. Now go rescue people from Egypt. But that was the point. That was the point. You see, when Moses tried to be a self-sufficient savior, he failed. He was destined to fail. 
partly because his strategy of rescuing Egypt or rescuing Israel from Egypt by picking off one Egyptian at a time was a terrible strategy. Terrible strategic planning was not going to work. But here's what also Moses failed to recognize. What Israel needed was far greater than just being moved out of Egypt. The removal of political oppression. Moses thought too small. Moses saw the problem as too small. It's hard to fathom that because this is pretty significant. But he failed to see that what Israel needed was not just freedom from political oppression. They needed to be set free from one kingdom and brought into another kingdom. They needed to be set free, yes, from the oppression of slavery and the the shame that all of that would bring on their identity and being beat down emotionally and physically and spiritually. They needed rescue from all of that. But they need to be rescued and restored from the sin and the corruption that existed within themselves, that existed within their community, that surrounded them completely in Egypt. They needed to be brought out. They needed to be transformed. They needed to be rescued, renewed, restored. And they needed to be able to worship the one true God. That's what God's point to Moses was in the beginning. I'm going to bring you out, and you're going to come back to this mountain, and you're going to worship me, and everything's going to be different. Moses could never do that. He could never rescue them to the depths that they needed, never redeem them to the degree that they needed. He could never transform and change everything about them, let alone bring them into the presence of a holy God that transformed their very identity. Moses, as a self-sufficient savior, was a failure. But what this story, what God declared to Moses, what this story in Exodus declares to us is this, that the Lord is the self-sufficient strength of our salvation. The Lord is a self-sufficient Savior. And the Lord is, a self, is the self-sufficient strength for our salvation. What Moses could not do, the Lord could do. What Moses failed to do, the Lord was going to do. What Moses was inadequate to do, the depth of the salvation that Israel needed to experience that Moses could never accomplish, God in all his greatness and all his power could. The Lord is the self-sufficient strength of our salvation. And so I wonder, friends, where do you see sin and suffering in our world? And you feel it. And you long for something to be different. Where do you see the pain and the brokenness whether it be on the news and social media and things that are very far from you or whether the things that are right in our own community, right in our own homes, right around us and up close and personal. What are the things that you see and it stirs in your soul, man, this needs to be different. And you long for someone to rescue. You long for change. You long for redemption. You long for what's broken to be fixed, what's lost to be found what's been damaged and corrupted to be renewed and made right. Hey, that longing is good. You should have that longing. It's right to desire to see the broken things fixed, the corrupted things made whole. And so if you have that longing, you are overwhelmed by that longing, hey, that is good. It's God-given. Don't run away from it. Don't bury it. Don't ignore it. But friends, we 
are not self-sufficient saviors. We're not self-sufficient saviors. As much as we look at the problems in our world, we look at the brokenness, we look at the corruption, we look at the sin, we look at the suffering, and we want to do something about it, we're not adequate for the task. At least not to the degree that things need to be fixed. Like if you think you can fix it, you're not thinking big enough. The problem is too small in your mind. So just take a moment and think of something specific. Maybe it's our jacked up political system. One way or another you see it as broken. Maybe it's the economic issues that you see. Maybe it is the sexual exploitation and abuse that you see. Maybe it is the fact that you see a country just going headlong into a morality and views of sexuality that are just throwing off everything that the Bible says is good and true and holy. Whatever the problem may be out there, and you feel it, what do you do about it? Some things you may not do anything about, but what do you want to happen? What do you put your hope in to think, well, that might be able to fix the problem? Now let's make it a little more personal. What about the stuff right in front of you? What about the brokenness in your job and the frustration in your job there? What about the brokenness in your marriage? Well, what about the brokenness in the trial and the pain that you have, you see in your kids, that happens in your parenting? What about the stuff in your own heart? What about the sin and brokenness that you face and you, when you're honest, realize lives in you? What do you do? You know, I, I can tell you what the world will tell you to do. Man, you need more education, you need more tactics, you need more strategy, you need to be, read more books, you need to get more counseling, you need to do all the things to help you. And look, there are things that we do that are good. I'm not saying those things are bad. And there are ways those things are really helpful. But completely and totally inadequate to truly fix what's broken in our world. Far, 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 far. Too powerless to get at the roots. See, friends, sin and evil and corruption have made its way down to the very molecules of existence, down to the very fabric of reality. And we are part of the problem. We're part of the problem. And education can't undo that. Better political systems can't undo that. Better economic systems can't do that. More education, more tactics, reading more books, more strategies, better communication between your, your spouse and your kids, better parenting techniques can't fix it. It's not going deep enough. Self-sufficient saviors will always, always, always fail. And so we're like Moses. And when we see and look at the weight of the situation and we go, who am I? What can I do? Good question and a good place to be because what we cannot accomplish, the Lord is a self-sufficient savior. The Lord's strength is the strength of our salvation. And so friends, we have every hope because here's the good news of the gospel. Here's what's so good for us is that 
the salvation that God sent Moses to accomplish in Israel and bring them out of Egypt was but a shadow and a picture of a greater salvation that God was going to accomplish. A much more cosmic, a deeper, he was going to touch it at the very roots. He he was going to go at the very heart of the problem and transform things forever. And he does that not by sending some shoeless shepherd shaking in his boots. Well, he didn't have shoes on, so he wouldn't have been shaking in his boots. But fearful to go back and confront Pharaoh. He doesn't send that person. (laughs) No. The great I am who is the father sends the son who is also the great I am. As we sang this morning, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, the one who comes to bring salvation to us, the one who comes to save us at the very root of reality is Jesus Christ, the son of God, God in the flesh, He steps into this world. He becomes a man and he enters into our sin-cursed world and he loves us and he brings the kingdom of God and he brings healing and he brings hope and he confronts evil and ultimately he lays down his life. Why does he do it? To pay for our sin, to pay for our rebellion, to, to pay for the fact that you and I, because we're part of the problem, deserve judgment. He takes that judgment on himself and pays the penalty in full. And on the cross, he also takes evil's best shot. Evil gives it all it has and strikes him down. But sin, death, evil don't win because praise God on the third day, he's resurrected in victory. Resurrected in victory over all our sin, all our suffering over death and over evil. In his death and resurrection, Christ strikes the decisive blow. He fixes the problem at the very foundational level. The salvation Christ brings goes right down to the fabric of reality. And here's our great hope. When we put our trust in Christ, when we put our trust in the self-sufficient strength of the Lord's salvation, oh, we experience forgiveness. We experience freedom. We experience the type of transformation that we need to experience at the level of our souls. But not only that, Christ's death and resurrection accomplished a victory that when he comes back, he is going to renew and restore all things. All of creation will be transformed by the glory of God. Christ's salvation covered every square inch of existence. That's how powerful, that's how glorious, that's how great it is. And that's our hope, church. What we as self-sufficient saviors could never accomplish, the truly self-sufficient savior did. Christ is the self-sufficient strength of our salvation. And so if you are here this morning and you have put your faith in Christ, here's how I want to encourage you. Look, the struggle will go on. The struggle is real. Christ hasn't returned, and so we still face sin and suffering. We are like Israel. We are still in the wilderness. But, and hear me on this, it is such a different place when you face those struggles and those trials, when you are resting in the self-sufficient strength of the Lord rather than being self-sufficient yourself. Like when you recognize that the, the, the most important aspect of this battle has been won, that Christ has given the decisive victory, that the Christ has defeated all sin and all evil and all suffering, that he is going to transform all things, then you recognize, hey, I don't have to be the one that fixes this thing. In fact, I'm powerless and that's fine. So what this means now for me is this. I rest in, I trust in what Christ has done. 
I take hold of the fact that I have been united to Christ. I have the Spirit. And so now I can walk in faithfulness. I can seek to glorify God in my life. And so whatever that means, whether it be in my marriage, my parenting, whether it be in my job, in my community, whether it be you be someone that actually has impact on a global scale or a larger scale, you enter in trusting in the power of Christ, knowing your limitations, knowing that you are the one that ultimately can't fix it, but you trust the Lord for what he has called you to do. And the foundation of that is this, returning as Israel would to this posture, God, we need you crying out for the Lord to rescue and redeem, crying out for the Lord to intervene, doing what we cannot do to save and to transform in ways that we could never do that. And so as we consistently posture our hearts and our lives, as we, as we have this sense that we cannot do this, it shapes us. It transforms us. This is not let go and let God and be passive. Not at all. It is an active crying out, it is an active longing, it is an active desire for God to do something. And when we're anchored in that, when we're centered on that, the way we live our lives changes. Because ultimately, when we bump up against our limitations, rather than running to anger, rather than running to self-pity, rather than running away, rather than trying to control things and jam those gears into place, we cry out to God. We ask him to do what only he can do. We trust him. We depend upon him. And we point each other to him. We point each other to the hope that we have. So this changes everything for us. Now let me just say, before we close, for those of you here this morning that don't trust in Christ, you said you, you wouldn't profess faith. Again, glad you're here. So glad you're here. I hope this morning you've been provoked by something. I hope this has stirred in you questions. But, but here's, here's what I want to affirm in you and here's what I want to challenge you. One, if you're the person that sees the brokenness and the sin in the world and that moves you, that is good. That's God-given. I want to affirm that in you. But here's where I want to challenge you. You understand that God cares about that more than you do? Like God cares about that far more than you do. Here's how I know. He spared no expense to deal with it. God sent his son into the world to die on a Roman cross to suffer torture and humiliation and shame and death. Yes, to be resurrected in power, but he sent his son to pay the penalty and to take on evil to that extent. That's how much God cares about the situation. That's the extent he went to deal with it. What can you offer that's better? What could you possibly put your hope in that is better? What system, what philosophy, what education, what tactic could you ever find hope in more than what God has done through Jesus Christ? Hey, if you want to talk about that, I'd love to. <laughs> but there is far more hope than anything you could do on your own or anything any system or institution could do on earth. And I want to encourage you, put your faith in Christ. Turn from the self-sufficiency, turn from the sin, and put your hope in the self-sufficient strength of the Lord. Friends, failure is this weird thing. Our past can be this weird thing where we try so hard to move away from them, we try so hard to, to learn from them, but yet they still have this way of like handcuffing us, right? <laughs> still have this way of like showing us we're not sufficient. Good. Good. 
It's the right lesson. However, we need not be enslaved. We need not be enslaved to our failures, the realization of our lack of self-sufficiency is not to lead us to self-pity, but to set us free so that we would turn to the self-sufficient strength of the Lord. And so I want to encourage you, acknowledging you're not sufficient is a step towards freedom, so don't hesitate. Don't, don't delay. Don't do half-hearted repentance. No. Turn to the Lord. Rest in his promises. Turn to the I am. We have the creator, sovereign Lord of the universe, the one who is responsible for all that exists in this world, the one whose power is unsurpassed, who has said, I am faithful, I keep my promises, and who has done what he said he would do through Jesus Christ. That being our hope, friends, let's die to our self-sufficiency and put our hope in the self-sufficient strength of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.